tonight on Protect Exploitation. Well, everybody, we are back. Here, tell us more about her brand new film. Please welcome Doris Wishman. Thank you for being here, Doris. You're more than welcome. Um, now, let me ask you about your system. You start with a title. Yes, I do. A lot of people don't start with a title. They start with an idea. You start with a title, and then you work from there. Is that true? Because I'm different. That's good. Let me tell you first about a movie that I finished about six months ago called Satan was a Lady. Mm-hmm. Because Satan really is, you know, she really was a lady. I'm sure of that, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> and I completed my next film, the film that you're referring to, I believe, about three months ago. And that film is called? Go ahead and tell it. Do I have to tell you? Yeah, just, uh, we want to promote the movie, so don't you want to say the name of your new movie? Well, it's called Dildo Heaven. I'm not blushing at all. I'm a newsman here getting the facts. But I have something to say to you. <laughs> when you mentioned best, best Picture, why didn't you mention Dildo Heaven? Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Well, that's why you I always like to see them first, you know, and then review them. Oh, but that's, that's so ordinary. No, i got to tell you, though. <laughs> listen, I'm going to grill her a little bit. I have seen both of the Chesty Morgan pictures. Yes. And... There's only really, I got to tell you, one reason that anybody want to see a Chesty Morgan picture, and that is to see Chesty Morgan nude. And we get all these shots of Chesty Morgan with clothes on. And I just wanted to kind of quiz you about that a little bit. Well, I'm sorry you're frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good well, Lord. Is, is there anything I can do? <laughs> All right, I'm going to wrap this thing up now. Before the FCC does it for me. Hollywood, the dream, and the nightmare. No, I mean it. I'd love to have someone to love or someone to love me. It ain't easy being a freak. And we're supposed to do this by treating ourselves to a fancy woman hunt, by turning them loose, hunting them down, and murdering them in cold blood. What you are about to see now is the second degree of torture. We should just bear our breath to the wind and let nature take its course, right? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Project Exploitation. My name is Nick Cheney. I am your co-host, sitting across from me, across the internet virtual land, is my co-host, Dan Jeremy Brooks. Dan, how are you? Bad girls go to hell. Bad girls. 
I'm going to do this every time, by the way. I'm going to come up with a little little song for each one, because I know how much you dig it. Oh, you know, at the very least, I was not expecting the clap. So I got to admit, uh, not bad. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Went, you went all out with that one. I did. I did. <laughs> uh, you know, I like the Four Seasons, you know. Oh, well. Anyway. I mean, so. who doesn't? Summer, you know, wonderful. You got autumn. Right, uh, right. Wait, why, Spring. Were you, were you talking about something else? No, no, that uh, was exactly it. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, and you know that's roughly around the time period ish of the movie we're going to be talking about. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's somewhat topical. But t- today we are going to be talking about bad girls go to hell, um, which I do not co-sign. <laughs> uh, I don't know where they go. And we are not going to impede our religious beliefs onto the audience. So just mm-hmm. want to put that out there right away. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I agree. I, I agree. Mean, it's not for us to judge. No. I mean, yes, this is technically a part of a cinematic universe that started with Bad Girls Go to Hell and ended with All Dogs Go to Heaven. But at least <laughs> at least in that movie, we got some uh, answers on some lingering questions uh, that we had, of course, following this movie. Well, yeah, that's a that's a really unconventional collaboration between Doris Wiseman and Don Bluth. And, oh, you know, yes. Bluth, you know, she was they were smart to save him for the end because he's a little more of an upper upper than <laughs> oh, she is. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So I guess, you know, before we get into it, I do want to mention something for our listeners benefit, not for our benefit, because we are selfless like that. Uh, but this past weekend. Myself, my co-host Dan, and his gal Heidi, uh, all went out to uh, what was it, Dixon, Illinois? Yeah, yeah, Rock Falls, Sterling, Dixon. That it was area. a. I was gonna say it was a weird triptych of towns in which I never quite knew which town I was in at any <laughs> at any given moment. But uh, yeah, over there they've got the Midway Drive-in, which uh, you know all summer I have been reading about and seeing. Uh, a lot of bills that they were doing, whether it was the Evil Dead trilogy or a few other fun stuff, uh, really taking advantage, of course, for good reason, of the pandemic uh, and people's uh, want and desire to go see movies but not die. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was the first one that I noticed that I really wanted to go to. So I was lucky enough to have you guys in my life to uh oh come on well just in general but also to uh indulge me uh <laughs> and uh come and watch four movies in a row from 8 p.m to 4 a.m ish i mean it was pretty much mm-hmm. a- around that time and we saw let's break down just the lineup really quick we saw uh the original we saw 4k restorations of the first two movies which were uh, the original Night of the Living Dead by Mr. George A. Romero. Great, great movie. Uh, followed up by John Carpenter's The Fog, which is one of one of my personal favorites. Um, and then the last two, the other uh, kind of post-midnight movies, were perfect, uh, well, midnight movies. They were uh, David Cronenberg's uh, Rabbit, which was, uh, you know, it was my second time watching and probably my first time paying attention. <laughs> So that was, uh, I did like it quite a bit more, and we'll get into that in a second. But it ended, of course, the night with a showing of, uh, actually, I think the 
both of them, Rabid and uh, this one, are both New World pictures. Uh, Roger Ooh. Corman produced. Sounds right. Um, and the last one is Humanoids from the Deep, which I'm a, <laughs> I guess I wouldn't say a big fan of, but I think I'm definitely slightly higher than most people because I think I, f- I find it to be the right amount of cheesy and um, kind of uh, just gross. <laughs> I mean that like morally speaking, not even like gore, even though the gore is actually kind of good too. But um, overall, Dan, did you uh, did you have a good time? Did you like these movies in general? Oh, I, I had a totally great time. Um, I mean, for one thing, uh, I had actually never seen Rabbit before. Ah. And I like Cronenberg quite a bit. In fact, it was like maybe three or four years ago, I decided to watch all of his movies in order. Well, all the ones that I own. And unfortunately, I didn't own Rabbit, and I, at the time, I was unable to find it. Um, so this was kind of nice to be able to finally see it and get a, get a kind of some insight into what his early style was like. And near as I can tell, he he had a he had his he was pretty well fully formed already, as far as uh, not not necessarily. I mean, obviously, he got better budgets as he went along. <laughs> But, you know, he definitely, his his uh, way of uh, creating shots, his way of creating tension uh, seemed like he had a pretty clear idea already, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. So I enjoyed it for that. And uh, I did like Humanoids from the Deep. Um, I liked the just absolute bedlam that that occurs in the last third. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, it's, it's really quite good. It's a um, good payoff of a lot of these weird exploitation movies like try to do the whole small town Jaws thing and then never truly commit to like, but this movie says that there's going to be this festival uh, and then actually delivers it with the carnage. Yep, exactly. Yes, I agree. It's uh, it it says what it's going to do and it does it, damn it. And it doesn't cheat the audience. And I mean, and and certainly for people watching that movie, I would think that that's a very satisfying flick. I mean, just the way they, they make it, the, the climax and everything. And and also, I really liked, like I said, Rabbit. I mean, I think it really builds up a really great head of steam as far as suspense goes. Um, it's an interesting kind of twist on the vampire genre. Um, anyway, it's sort of closer in some ways to like Claire Denise's um, Trouble Every Day, which I don't think many people have seen, unfortunately, because it was pretty much uh, uh, just trashed by all the say, critics. I say, at the very least, it got a lukewarm secession, or I should say at the very best, it got a lukewarm reception. But yes. I've seen a lot of reappraisals for it, and I, um, it's one of the, it's why, well, actually, it is the only <laughs> Claire Denise films I've ever seen uh, on Shudder, the horror streaming oh. service. So it's definitely caught my interest because I never knew she uh, had made a movie like that, so... Yeah, it was a very unusual film for her to do at that point in her career. I mean, I guess everything she does, she does what she wants clearly she nowadays. Does. But, but yeah, that's. Uh, but I, I felt that a little. I mean, Rabbit definitely had a much larger cast. Uh, Trouble Every Day is more almost like a chamber piece, but with a lot of gore, if you will. Mm. Um, yeah, which I think you'll like. And it, 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 yeah, yeah, it's quite good. And uh, yeah, I, I really liked Rabbit. And of course, I, I love Night of the Living Dead. Always have. And yeah. uh, it was nice to finally see it in the theater. I'd never seen it in the theater. And nor had I seen The Fog in the theater, which I really enjoyed this time. I enjoyed it even more, I think, than the first time I saw it. I, that's a movie that creeps up there for me. I mean, I, if I'm just being objective, like, I still give Night of the Living Dead the best rating out of all four of those. Sure. But for my money, I feel like I'm, like, I want to wrap myself up in a blanket that is made out of the atmosphere <laughs> in John Carpenter's The Fog. Totally. Particularly in, in that, la- or last, the first, like, 30 minutes, I've said this to you, but mm-hmm. the... 
the way he essentially scores the uh, kind of meditating action before the the anniversary day is there, you know, the night before with uh, Adrian Barbeau in the lighthouse as the DJ. Uh, and it, it goes on for quite a while. I've never seen a movie, you know, you wouldn't really have that nowadays where um, um, kind of a not, not necessarily mainstream, but definitely big budget filmmaker would be allowed to just kind of, uh, in some people's eyes, probably quote unquote, waste that much time uh, just setting up atmosphere. But he he does, and he and he completely earns it. Yeah, I agree. It has a real sustained mood, which is very difficult to keep up for a long time. And and he really has it through the whole film, of course. But yeah. but certainly, like you said, that first 20, 25 minutes before it kind of ebbs a bit, you know, because you have to you have to pace the film, of course. Right. But yeah. he does a great job of, of kind of creating that feeling of um, dread. And uh, like you said, it has to do with his score. Uh, he, he almost he often writes his own music, I should say. Almost oh, yeah. always, I would say. And uh, obviously, the cinematography, the editing, uh, the cross-editing between the different characters. It's just, a, it's just a fascinating mood piece. I mean, even if nothing happened in it, if in the end the story fizzled out and there was actually nothing other than just actual fog, it would still feel pretty great, I think. You oh, know, yeah. It's, it's, you know, and I have movies like that, too, where I just want to wrap myself in that in that mood, you know. Um, and, and and certainly I can see how Fog would be an attractive one to do that for. For sure. Well, that, I got to say, was a good weekend, I think, for us both. Mm-hmm. And uh, great movies. Uh, I got to say, shout out to Midway Drive-In uh, for having, I thought, very, very good COVID guidelines. Uh, almost better than a lot of restaurants I've been in to. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, I mean, A, like when you went to the bathroom like they would even hold the door open for you. So you wouldn't even have to hold the door handle, which like I said, this thing went from, uh, well, in reality it went from 4 PM because technically you could get there when they opened at four because they had some horror vendors and whatever. So they had staff by those bathrooms, uh, from four to four. That's a 12 hour stretch, just opening and closing the door, uh, for the bathroom, which, uh, you know, uh, Obviously, they the burden shouldn't be on them, you know, as driving theaters to so like stay afloat because, you know, whatever. But I also obviously got to hand it to them that they are taking this so seriously and um, that they do respect and appreciate, uh, you know, patronage and unfortunately, what's become kind of a dying art uh, when it comes to the way we view media. Uh, very true. Yeah. And I, I mean, I I could tell that they had done this already several times. I mean, they had already built up a pretty good system because yeah. they were they were really like a well-oiled machine. And I was very impressed at the fact that they would open the door oh, yeah. uh, for you. Because, I mean, God, I used the bathroom probably a dozen times, you know, during oh, that yeah. stretch. You, know? you were just constantly uh, just. Angry. Oh, I know. I know. I was angry at myself for drinking all that beer. No, and I'm you know kidding. what? We are now into the segment where we talk about Dan's bladder habits. So, Dan, uh, yes. let's get into do it uh, no. <laughs> roll the theme song no, <laughs> no there we go i just pour a, I just... you know a glass of water into another glass <laughs> just for a sound effect oh man um no their their covid guideline their entire system was honestly more consistent and well-oiled than my uh, audio solution for our, <laughs> for for our viewing uh, which for the most part worked pretty well but uh, it was fine man, it worked great that, that portable FM tuner was a 
bit on the uh, picky side. If you even looked at it wrong, all of a sudden we'd be hearing REO Speedwagon from the next uh, <laughs> station over. Well, I mean, it was, yes, uh, listeners at home, just to set the scene, basically he had a very, very old FM tuner. And uh, then you would... Brand new FM tuner, just old school, uh, shall we say. It was bought at Walmart uh, the day before. Oh, but wow. yes, okay. modeled after the you know classic portable FM tuner with the antenna and everything. Yeah, right, right. It looks <laughs> a lot like like uh, back in the. Uh, 80s my dad used to have one of those that was just such to the weather channel and it looked a lot like that you i was know? gonna so, say it's the kind you take fishing you know you just put it, it right there exactly. on the bench <laughs> yep and just listen to the ball game you know and uh so so it was married to uh the speaker you had bought which was quite nice yeah uh, as far as portable speakers go it was quite high end i thought yeah and it was also something that could be fully submerged in water. So if at any point we needed to throw it into a pool out there, we could, which I was pretty psyched about. Unfortunately, we never really had the opportunity to do that. But still, yeah, we should have when we got back to the hotel room, we should have filled up the bathtub just to try it. But we didn't. Totally. Totally. You did a little fear and loathing in Las Vegas where he's about to throw the radio. He's like, yeah, wait, wait for wait for White Rabbit to reach the climax and I'll throw it in there and electrocute. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. That was a terrible Hunter S. Thompson impression. I'm Barely. so sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Uh, well, you know, I tried, damn you. At least I tried. <laughs> Don't put this on me. <laughs> no, I know. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, we had a great time, met some really, really fine people. And uh, yeah. like you said, I mean, they were more organized than I think a lot of restaurants I've been to. I was really impressed. Absolutely. So that was our time at the Midway Drive-In. Uh, they are accepting donations. So if you go to their website, uh, throw them a fiver or so because uh, it's people and uh, organizations like them that really need uh, our help and are actually putting in the work too. I think uh, earn it too, which not to say that they have to, but it's always nice to see. So agreed. Yeah. So let's do it. Let's get in to the main event of the episode. Uh, before we talk about the film itself, I'll probably go into a little bit of history on the genre itself. Yeah, I, kinda... I would like that, actually. I mean, if you don't, yeah. not to interrupt, but I, I would love it if you did, no. because uh, it's it's such a new thing for me. I mean, I've heard of it, but I know almost nothing about it. Yeah. So, I mean, the movie we're doing itself is Bad Girls Go to Hell, uh, released 1965, directed by Doris Wishman. Um, Bad Girls Go to Hell is technically an entry into two different uh Genre, that's a broad genre and a subgenre. Broadly speaking, this is sexploitation, which really had its heyday in the 60s before pornography became a viable uh, commercial uh, product. Uh, and besides sexploitation, it is also what's known as a roughie. Uh, and the entire 60s, uh, you can kind of track. Uh, sexploitation into two different eras uh, the first half of the 60s and the second half because first the first half was really trying to capitalize on what they called nudie cuties which were literally just movies that tried to have uh, any excuse or you know pretense to just have naked women and now that's 
that's the key there it's naked women because these are all heteronormative uh you know pandered to the male straight audiences um so you know there are so many examples but like doris wishman herself got her start doing uh, nudist camp movies as early as 1961 i think um and uh obviously we know like people like um uh ed wood and whatnot mm. were doing things like the one that you and I, when did uh, Orgy of the Dead come out? I think it came out 65. Oh, so that okay. was same, same year. So. Yeah. And that actually makes sense because it's, it, it's very much a nudie cutie and not quite a roughie, obviously, but it has that gothic draping uh, as films were trying to move into a slightly darker pretense even though orgy of the dead is one of the silliest and uh non-macabre movies ever made true true although i do love it very much and oh, yeah. uh you were you were kind enough to buy me this pretty fantastic orgy of the dead pin which i have actually sitting over by my desk well, you know. and uh i love it oh, it's fantastic i try mm-hmm. uh, well, you succeeded sir go me so first half, as I said, first, you know, 1960 to 1950s, the nudie cuties were still kind of taking uh, precedent. And then we saw a slight shift and a slight change around midway and Bad Girls Go to Hell itself. I don't think it was the very first roughie, but it was on the front line. It was one of the it was one of the first few movies where it took the same uh uh, what do I want to say? Elements of a nudie cutie, which is the the naked female form, a lot of heavy petting and that kind of thing. Um, but it moved it into a slightly more sexual place because the nudie cuties were really just pinup models and uh, wannabe actresses just standing around not doing anything like even males would sometimes not even usually even be in the shot or the scene itself because it was just like oh look at these three single gals and now look oh she's <laughs> taking a shower and it's like you know and it's like there's just no point to them there's no whatever um and it wasn't until about halfway through when these roughies came up that um no matter how simplistic they may look uh, from today's era, they were technically written and conceived with a quote unquote a point. And mm. you know, it's it's weird because it on the one hand, it almost seems like it's a reaction to uh, the you know the 60s itself, which was the the era of the sexual revolution. And I almost feel like sexploitation, the you know, film in general. Um, was almost ahead of its time because they were trying so hard to get past censor laws and, and you know, move the needle a little bit every time they made a new movie. And then the sexual revolution was such a huge, you know, boon and whatnot. You know, you had things like the feminine mystique. Uh, I think it's mm-hmm. the 60s when Hugh Hefner made the first Playboy Club, you know. So mm-hmm. these weren't just uh, found mm-hmm. artifacts. This was now you know, real thing you could go interact with, whether it would be going to your movie palace or going to clubs and whatnot. And I feel like in the second half, you know, from 65 to 70, which is really the prelude to pornography when that takes off in the 70s, it was almost like a stark reaction to that because it was now in vogue and it was, you know, uh, cool and obviously somewhat more socially acceptable to talk about sex, to 
talk about sexual satisfaction and whatever. So, of course, where does exploitation have to go from there? Well, to the other side of the coin, that, you know, sex is uh, not even necessarily inherently bad, but that it almost is like it's just too much temptation for society to mm. get out in any pure sense of, you know, the other end. And um, we'll talk about this, obviously, but that's kind of where Bad Girls Goes to Hell falls and that it's right after the um, the disillusionment of the first half of that era is starting to fade. And it's now kind of really sh- kind of a projecting this trajectory of a much darker and the consequences of a freer world and whatnot. But of course, it's all aimed at a female. And then that was kind of the point of Ruffies was that it was a female, you know, protagonist that always had to either willingly or non-willingly go into a profession that was either sex work or sex work related, you know, like whether it was a model or a stripper or just, you know, a prostitute or anything like that. And then finding out that it's, you know, quote unquote, much uh, worse than they thought, or Mm. they didn't want to do any of that to begin with, but they couldn't make money in the big city and whatnot. So um, that's kind of the general overview of what, sexploitation looked like in the 60s and obviously if you've seen bad girls go to hell you can kind of see where this fits in right snug in the middle um but yeah this is uh it's an interesting movie i think doris wishman is a very good filmmaker actually she you know she always had super cheap movies most of the quote-unquote faults or flaws of this movie were just inherent in sexploitation in that era i mean all these movies were Almost, you know, a lot of them were shot in New York, which meant that they all had to edit the sound post-sync. So mm-hmm. they never actually recorded dialogue. Um, they would just do all that and even probably write a lot of it, mm-hmm. um, you know, after the visuals were recorded and then just get people in the booth. But, you know, Doris technically does shoot it in a way that's slightly more interesting than a lot of her peers. I mean, um, a lot of times people just didn't even care about how they shot it. So you would have like people just flat out like close up of their face, not moving their lips. And somehow they were, you know, saying a line of dialogue in, in the ADR booth, Doris at least tried to edit around it. And she, you know, does some clever tricks, whether it's like um, that opening bedroom conversation, she's actually showing you the reverse shot of whoever's speaking. So if, oh, yeah, if right. the wife is speaking, then we're seeing the, you know, the husband's reaction. And of course, you know, we have to suspend our disbelief because they are very clearly not having this conversation, but at least there was some effort there to try to work within the means and I think into the codes of this subgenre. So, anyway, that's sorry to kind of ramble a bit, but that's no, no, no. That's that's what I wanted to hear because uh, again, I, I do find this stuff very fascinating, and uh, this is an area where you know a lot more than me. Yeah, so. some would say too much, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, not me. Oh well, you know. So let's get on to Bad Girls Go to Hell itself. Um, why don't we, uh, you know, uh, why don't we start? With you, Dan, are you okay with that? Uh, sure, sure, absolutely. Okay, what did you think about the, especially uh, from what it sounds like, being your first real foray into 60s sexploitation, which is, right. I will say, even before you say anything, a kind of a shock of just how cheap it can be. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of very cheap films over the years, and and I've seen some very good ones that were very, very inexpensive, of course. Uh, but yeah, this was definitely, yeah, I, I think I might have said to you uh, earlier today, I don't know if I said this to you or I said this to Heidi, but basically I said, I feel like in a sense, I'm like a pilgrim who's kind of been dropped onto an alien world or an alien planet, which has its own labyrinthine uh, <laughs> groups of customs and tropes and its own cultural touchstones that, so for me, it's very difficult to know, well, what stuff here is the more unique stuff and what's the more uh, typical stuff where, oh yeah, yeah, they always had to have a certain amount of that in there or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'll just dive in and talk about the, the things that I, that struck me right away, which were uh, just kind of that odd schizophrenic mix of the prosaic and the forbidden elements, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which I, I understand is, again, it's based in part on budget, but also just some intriguing aesthetic choices. I mean, for one thing, they had handheld black and white camera, which makes it a very raw feel. I mean, it's very handheld. It's not oh, like, yeah. it's not like a guy standing in a corner, you know, holding it basically in place. I mean, this is very much, they're moving around quite a bit. I've always thought that Cassavetes basically paved the way for this, you know, like once. Sure. Because, I mean, he did it obviously much better as far as aesthetically speaking and just on a much grander scale when it comes to the human emotion and whatnot but you know like that led the way like you know this is independent cinema through and through and obviously it's i think his influence is felt here sure yeah and i do wonder if, if i mean I, thinking about him and this the, the, these films these doris wishman films and yeah and even i know we were talking about husbands and wives the other day you know and i was just thinking i wonder if this is sort of a new york uh, aesthetic that kind of came out of uh, partly out of uh, necessity, where it was like we're, we're in these very confined areas, you know, uh, and so you you can't really do a David Lean movie that's super expansive, and you know what I yeah. mean. And so you almost have to lean, no pun intended, you have to lean into that kind of handheld look. And I think this film does that, and, but it is very jarring to see that kind of um, almost quasi documentary look, but uh, pairing it with. Things like um, like those little sitcom like flip transitions, oh, like yeah. you'd see in like the Brady Bunch or you know like My Three Sons or maybe I don't know Bewitched, but those little bloop bloop. It's it's so jarring to see that when you're watching. It's it's like watching this like you know black and white doc, and then all of a sudden it's like <laughs> it's doing one of these sitcommy type transitions. Um, another thing that's really intriguing is those kind of that zippy bop jazz score, well, sort of pseudo bop, I should say, uh, which is actually just credited to music, music soundtrack, yeah, I read that. <laughs> <laughs> which is just incredible in itself. Um, but there is like almost in the film, a near constant like wallpaper of music. And it actually almost reminds me at times, again, another New York filmmaker, it reminds me of uh, some of those uh, scenes in Spike Lee's films. There's always at least one or two inevitable scenes where the music just sort of plays and plays while the characters are talking. Often during one of his improvised scenes, he usually has at least one improvised scene in each of his films. And it kind of felt like that where it's like, where the music is just kind of going and it's not even providing a counterpoint anymore. It, it's it's more like just a second thing, a second layer, you know, for better, for worse. So, yes. you know, like, for instance, there was a lot of score, which actually didn't even maybe fit the mood, as I would think, like a, there's a very jaunty score during that whole house cleaning sequence that very, you know, work a day common, common moments at the beginning where she's just going around taking out the trash. And so there's kind of this almost manic quality to it, the, the way the music changes and the way that it often uh, stands in um, kind of like 
uh, defiance of the action. And so I, I found that intriguing. And and again, it's I know some of this is probably par for the course, but for me, again, it was it was like, oh wow. So th- oh. so that was kind of one of my first things I noticed for sure. And not only that, but you got off easy because um, the score is actually one of the better parts of this movie. Sim- oh, wow. Simply for the fact of the fact that there is an actual score, like the music is different from scene to scene. Mm-hmm. There are uh, there are movies in this subgenre. I think I just watched for the first time The White Slaves of Chinatown, which introduces the very famous exploitation character uh, Olga. Um, mm. And that movie was almost insufferable because they took this one, what we would call nowadays, like loop, uh, this one like 15 to 20 second loop of this kind of, you know, uh, Chinese, you know, music. And they <laughs> played it literally ad nauseum over and over, just repeated the 20 second loop throughout the entire thing. Oh, um, 20 seconds. Wow. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, it was, that, it was, that I mean, it was kill. that. Um, just monotonous and it was so bad whereas even though you're on the money as far as you know this is all just kind of budgetary thing where yeah the score doesn't really comment on the action itself uh, at the very least in bad girls go to hell they paid for enough music <laughs> sure and, and i mean the score isn't bad per se i mean it's a little on the generic side but it's, yeah. it's certainly not bad but it, it does it, it oftentimes like i said it feels like a counterpoint which again, maybe there may be a reason for that, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, at the uh, very, so I was gonna say really quick the go ahead. the the general thing when you watch like any of these from the sixties, it's all, one of the traits is like what we would consider something pulled out of the royalty free music box, you know. <laughs> right, right. Which is what are what I assume music soundtrack is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, another thing that struck me as far as the. Um, that kind of schizophrenic mix between, you know, common common or, or even boring elements and and, you know, kind of transgressive or or, or forbidden or whatever you want to say elements is it was interesting how the dubbing doesn't appear to not always, but for most of the film, it doesn't appear to even attempt a very close sync to the mouth. Um, now, I'm assuming, again, that's kind of typical of the subgenre, because you had said sometimes they were writing the script actually after they filmed it. Mm-hmm. So I could kind of see that. There's like an interesting scene um, near the beginning where they keep cutting to shots of ducks uh, during oh, the yeah. conversation with Al on the park bench, which I thought was interesting. And I wondered if it was perhaps out of necessity, which is, you know, like I think I've talked to you about this, but uh, much like Rodriguez's technique in El Mariachi, where whenever he was, he would cut to a shot of the dog whenever the audio sync started to go out because, you know, he had to film that all oh, yeah. without sound and then record the people after they filmed that day. So, mm-hmm. you know, so he would just keep cutting to the dog and like people thought, oh, that's brilliant. That's such a funny thing. And he's like, yeah, it, I, it worked out well, but I got to tell you, that was entirely out of necessity, <laughs> you know? So uh, there's even like kind of an intriguing, almost minute long montage of just New York City pigeons walking around. Uh so I wondered if, in a way, Wishman is kind of approaching it. Again, it's black and white. It's a little documentary looking. I wonder if she was kind of approaching it like, you know, New York City is sort of the exotic otherness. You know what I mean? Not quite National Geographic, but that kind of like, ah, look, here are the pigeons, here are the ducks, you know, and that kind of thing. So I thought that was intriguing. Yeah. Um, so those are kind of my opening thoughts. And yeah. I have some I have some, some, some deeper layers, I guess, I'd get into. But I'd be curious to kind of hear what you think about all that. For sure. So yeah, um, I'm glad to hear that uh, you did not uh, fall asleep because <laughs> um, I would 
pretty much understand well, it, any modern audience just not giving a shit about any of these movies. <laughs> man, I've seen I've seen some Bellatar movies, man. I've True. seen some Jacques yeah. Rivette and <laughs> man, those are like oceans of that's like acres of boredom. Like yeah. just just you know, pastures of plenty of of boredom, and I don't even mean that necessarily as a bad thing because it's obviously partially intentional. Right, right. So, I mean, this this little film that was only what like sixty four minutes long was jaunty by comparison. I was going to say, so, I think that is one of those things where if people truly want to know, like, why can you watch so many of these? Like, sixty minutes, like you know, it's like you're in, you're out. <laughs> right. uh, at the end of the day, sometimes I want that. <laughs> I I totally agree, and uh, I appreciated that about it that you kind of made my first one. Uh, you know, short, a shorter film and, and also one with some interesting twists. So anyway, yeah. go on. Yeah, no. So, so I'm a big fan of this one. It's probably the stuff that I've seen. I would say it's only really second to another one that I quite enjoy, not by Wishman, but that one's called One Naked Night. And um, mm. that one's fantastic. Maybe one day we'll watch it. Not any day soon, but uh, it's mm -hmm. a great one. But similar plot to this as far as, uh, well, similar plot to a lot of them where, you know, a, um, a, a woman goes into the big city hoping to find a new life for whatever reason and that it's just to try to find a career change in this one obviously there's actually a much more stark reason and that's what we're going to get into i think right after my opening thoughts but from the get-go what i like about bad girls go to hell is that doris wishman i think is creating a movie within a subgenre and a cult that was essentially created by men mm -hmm. and I think even if not 100% intentionally, there's no way to not subconsciously lend a feminine touch to it, which I only mean as far as her stature as just being a woman in this society. And she technically centralizes while... Uh, I would say centralizes the, not the gaze, but at least the thematic heft onto the woman's plight. Hmm. And, it, and that in and of itself is kind of rare in this entire subgenre because a lot of times, you know, if you thought this was basic and or not subtle or whatever, it's like it could be even more uh, just opaque and um, non caring about its uh, protagonist uh, in the hands of men. And it often was. But I think Doris Wishman is lending a sympathetic. Uh, camera towards the story that is playing out and especially towards the character of Meg herself. Um, you know, I think the title alone, Bad Girls Go to Hell, is a flippant title. I don't think, mm -hmm. you know, we're supposed to take it as um, a, an actual lurid commentary on the action. I think what was great about what Doris Wishman was doing was she was doing one of two things. Uh, in a movie like, you know, the, um, the Immoral 3 or the Chesty Morgan movies, mm. she was basically like, let's just make this even more ridiculously silly than, you know, uh, my uh, male peers and um, <laughs> and just going that far in that direction. But I think in something like Bad Girls Go to Hell, it was the other side of the coin was like, well, if we're going to make a roughly, then why don't we actually make one that technically does speak to the uh, just kind of experience of what it would be like, I think, to be a woman in the midst of the sexual revolution where 
you know, all these freedoms are technically being uh, handed out and more morally acceptable. And yet who's paying the price? It's women. Yeah. And <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I love this movie in general because i really think there's some stuff going on here um i like the way it's shot i always think doris wishman has a good eye some of the uh she i would say she, like maybe besides someone like joe sarno another person uh mm-hmm. in this genre um who is like almost like bergman as you know sven nykus type mm-hmm. compositions uh, i'm not saying they're quite on that level but i would say that they are aspiring to be close to something like that um mm-hmm. but Outside of maybe him, uh, I think she shoots with an interesting eye, whereas if she either, I think, composes a nice shot. I mean, there's some interesting angles here where the camera's on the ground looking straight up or uh, vice versa. Yeah, I noticed those. Those were really interesting, yeah. Yeah, and and, and it's so weird. It really does give the movie a live wire, uh, you know, kind of mood because a lot of times, you know, that someone brings in the camera, just sets it on the tripod, walks, you know, tells them to shoot for the day, you know, and doesn't really whatever. But I do think she cared. And I think that's kind of evident throughout the whole movie. Um, but overall, I think Bad Girls Go to Hell is never not entertaining uh, for what these movies are. Um, the structure never to me feels too monotonous while it uh, often could in the subgenre because while she is being used and abused by everybody i feel like these are variations on a theme which is different than just straight up repetition yeah i would agree i mean it's it's sort of like in the way that um dogville you know the main character yeah. is abused but but it's not repetitious i mean it's repetitious in the, the moral um driving home you know yes yes but the uh but there's it's done in a variety of ways you know which makes it probably more depressing (laughs) absolutely (laughs) anyway no and that's that's very true and um and that's kind of what what i respond to this i i like we get these kind of almost uh not subplots but these weird character sketches of characters in which she suffers abuse from you know flat out rapists to mm-hmm. alcoholic drunks to even uh, having to basically run away from uh, her bout of lesbianism you know with uh, right. with the one roommate um and then of course uh, or even the the sketch with the uh, the husband and wife where it's like even you know in that instance um I, you know, this movie really doesn't have a lot of nice things to say about either sex. I, I would say it's a little more fair to women, which I think it should be, based on both mm-hmm. the perspective and, frankly, uh, just what happens in the world. Um, but, you know, even in that scene where it's the wife that's almost like more into this than the husband is, even though he's the one who's going to get it. But it really felt like this kind of like, look what I mm-hmm. got you, hon. And it's like, what? Yeah, yeah, I agreed. Um, and yeah, and then of course, by the very end, and that's where I think I'm going to open up the just kind of the general discussion. What I think is most radical about this movie is the ending. And I know that's hard to say and sometimes even hard to see from a modern era. Like it was all a dream, you know, is a lot of times touted as like a lazy ending mm-hmm. but you have to remember two things for at least for me i do uh which is that a none of the other you know sex exploitation movies were ending like this if anything that's a rebuke because exploitation was trying to show you how the real world was you know that this is what's happening whatever and so to to end the movie to suggest that a what you previously saw 
was completely made up and it was a dream or whatever. Um, and then to repeat literally mm-hmm. the same shots uh, following that dream sequence, which is a feature length dream sequence, um, to ambiguously essentially leave the audience in a state of, you know, this almost purgatorial like uh, state, um, I thought it was extremely radical for a, a number of reasons. But uh, before I get into any of them, I'm curious, Dan, what did you think about this ending in general? Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, for me, uh, the ending the, is the dream sequence in this case is not a cheat or lazy at all. In fact, I think it's it's really terrifying or maybe horrifying is the more correct word mm-hmm. because it, it's uh, the ending to me shows that like you said you said something about purgatorial or i mean one could say hell you know of course because that's in the title yeah but and i'll get into that more when i get to the a-list suggestion later on Mm -hmm. but yeah i have some thoughts about that and and i i think it ties into something else that wishman keeps popping in so it's it'll take me a second to kind of unwind or unpack as they say all this but basically First of all, the the film, and I didn't realize it until about halfway through, the episodic quality of it reminded me of something that were called uh, uh, picaresque novels, uh, which were very popular, gosh, I want to say like for in like maybe the last, like maybe in the 1600s up until maybe the 20th century, although there are some 20th century examples too. But they were basically novels about a lower class hero who is either on the lamb, you know, from the law, yeah. or just prefers to travel and never hold down a job. Now, in this case, obviously, Meg slash Ellen is on the lamb. But the the picaresque, usually there's not a whole lot of plot, and but there's a lot of different locations. Uh, you meet a lot of different kinds of people that are kind of sketched quickly, like you were saying, you get, get these brief character sketches. Um, and... I mean, there's like some famous books like uh, Tom Jones, Huckleberry Finn, um, Don Quixote, Candide, Tristram Shandy, uh, Journey of the West, which is actually a Chinese novel. So that's kind of interesting. But anyway, so there's they were a very popular thing that blended satire with um, literally like a travel log. It was like, oh, I mean, you know, all these new and exciting places. And I think the episodic quality of this film is a lot like that where you you meet characters, you stay with them for a time, and then you never see them again because the protagonist moves on for, for usually for a pretty good reason. And I wondered if this all ties into something that I detected in Wishman's stuff, at least in this film. I'd have to see more of her films to really see. But I said earlier about the exotic otherness of New York, how she was filming it like like from the perspective of somebody from Boston, like Meg Ellen, she's like, oh, I'm, you know, I've never been to New York, but I know that I can, you know, she says something like, here, I got the quote, she says, I'll go to New York, I can get lost in the crowd there. And so then when she gets there, and you know, like I told you, there's the shots of the ducks and the pigeons, and there's this almost this feeling like you're kind of visiting this uh, totally different world. And, and she's sort of, uh, you know, observing it from afar. And I wondered if, that ties into something Wishman keeps doing throughout the movie, which is something I would maybe call Orientalism or mm. Exotica. Yeah. Um, so there's like, uh, I mean, well, first off, we know that Meg slash Ellen has an interest in the exotic, as does apparently Wishman. I mean, like, there's even that part at the beginning where he's like, hey, I'll take you to that Calypso bar you love at the beginning. You know, and Calypso is very much oh, yeah. du-, du jour in uh, the U.S. in the 60s. And basically, it had to do with something uh, I find really fascinating in general, just as a as a theme in, in art in general from the last hundred so years. But it's this idea of, like, the exotic that 
the Westerners imagine, but it's not like the realistic depiction. It's more like what Westerners might guess yeah. is what an exotic faraway locale. Which is kind <laughs> of exploitation like. in a nutshell with regards to violent and sexual themes. <laughs> right, exactly. Ah, I'm so glad you said that because oh, I was like, boy, I hope I'm not going off. No, 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 no I'm yeah. like, I hope I'm not going off on a crazy. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's like um, there's a music from the 50s and 60s called Exotica, which I love. And it's very much like music that's like the plastic commercialized version of Asian culture that's that's the idea of exotic culture, but not the reality of it. Right. Sometimes, sometimes in academic circles, you'll hear it called uh, Orientalism, which is this uh, mythologizing of this sort of Asia that never really existed. You know, and Asia can include the Caribbean and even even Russia and the Middle East to an extent. Right. You know, like the they used to call it like a. The Steamy East, which were like these dime store novels and these like Mr. Moto movies. And wow. you know, like between, yeah, between like the 30s and the and the 60s, Mr. Moto had like a bunch of movies with Peter Lorre, who I love. But it was very much like this version of the East that was very mysterious and inscrutable, if you will, you know. <laughs> but it, I think in this case, though, I don't think Wishman's using the Orientalism for just because it's like a cool uh, aesthetic value added. You know, I, I think... Because it keeps popping up. Like, you notice those shots of, I think it's Shiva, the goddess. That's the right. Yeah. yeah, like during that second rape sequence, the one that's like between like 49 minutes and 51 minutes. Yeah, and it cuts to it, right? Several times. And I mean, it, yes. it's not totally crazy in the sense that the objects are in the room. It's not like an Eisenstein cut where you're like, dude, where did we just go? Yeah. But it's weird. But it's weird that she's giving it that level of primacy. Like, hey, we're going to keep cutting here. You know, just I think even Della's place has like at least one statue, which is Hindu Buddhist Oriental-esque. Yeah. <laughs> and I know for a fact, Mrs. Thorne, the, the last woman she stays with, she has Eastern shrines throughout her living room. I totally know about that. I mean, that is definitely true. Yeah. So it's it's like, I see all that. And I wondered if we were trying to, well, okay. So when you watch the film, when, when you're watching the film, I saw these things coming up, but I didn't really see how they all maybe connected other than they were just interesting. But then when I see it through the prism of the film's end, I wondered if this Orientalist imagery is being used by Wishman as like, they're like little signifiers, little signposts along the way to talk about this sort of endless cycle of Meg slash Ellen's life. You know what I mean? I like definitely think that, that it's like, it's, I, I think it's 50, 50 in the sense that sure. on the, on the one hand, I think the prevalence of these things may be due to the fact that because of the cheap budget, this is literally the same apartment, <laughs> no matter <laughs> how many times they say it's a new person's apartment. You know what I mean? Like, you so know, what's sad is I didn't, really even think of that till now. I, I mean, that's only because I, I know that that's literally just how these movies were shot. Um, you know, you, you would it would be either their own apartment or their friend that they were able to basically go into for the week because, you know, they were out in the Hamptons or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we know for a fact that this isn't a unintentional because like you said during that rape scene we, we cut to it this isn't you know mm -hmm. uh just something that is accidentally like a starbucks cup left in the shot during game of thrones so um <laughs> right. i i definitely well, think that was intentional my friend that was totally intentional no, that was uh that was tying it in and 
trying to say that this is a talking quantum. about the well caffeine as being of course a uh, uh from from beans and beans of course being a colonial oh. uh, export exploit exploiting the indigenous people in the sense that the white walkers were the indigenous people who were being unfairly uh press their space was being pressed in upon by these westerners and wow. so that that was what the starbucks cup represents i believe and here i thought that it was just a subtle nod that that specific episode was actually uh uh, tie into the seminal TV show Sliders with Jerry O'Connell, uh, in which, oh. technically speaking, this was just for one episode only an alternate universe uh, of Westeros. <laughs> which I love that idea, and, and I love Sliders too. I've only seen a couple episodes, but I remember always thinking, "Man, that's a show I need to make time to watch." You so. don't, but also you wouldn't regret it. <laughs> no, cool. I will do it someday. We will do it. Right. So anyway, you were saying. Uh, so it's not just a matter, you were saying, not just a matter of the Starbucks cup. These are things that are being, she's pointing to him. She's by cutting, say. she's signaling to him. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's, I was just saying that, like, just to also draw the curtain back a little bit that, yes, this is how these movies were made because they're literally using the same apartment and whatever. But in case someone were to come at us with that, I would say, but you have to look at the fact that she does cut to it. She does uh, repeatedly juxtapose that with arguably, you know, the the biggest piece of action in the movie which means that it has to carry the most weight in the film too so i definitely think that it is completely intentional okay well good i mean i'm, I'm glad you said that because like i said before i was, i was about halfway through and i started noticing it more and more and i'm like oh that's interesting so i made some notes but when i saw that final shot in the film that ending yeah. where she's looking you know, she's really looking. She, it's it's the old. I mean, usually it's done in comedy and old silent films. It's the appeal to the audience. Like, uh, you know, you've got uh, Laurel and Hardy, and Hardy's like, "You see what I'm up against here, people? You see it? <laughs> you see it, right? You see that I'm I'm totally alone up here." <laughs> yeah. So it's usually meant for to, for laughs, but in this case, the breaking of the wall, fourth wall, is very much an appeal. Like, my God, I think I think I'm trapped here forever. What can I do to get out of this? Um, yeah. Do I have any agency in my life? You know, which I mean, it's certainly something that I'm sure a lot of women particularly in the 50s and 60s in in the US were asking themselves an awful lot uh but you know the other thing it reminded me too of is um another one of my favorite films of the last few years was one of my cause celebres uh which is enter the void um which begins with two characters discussing the tibetan book of the dead mm, and then the film yeah. continues for the rest of the movie like with like a visual and plot form of that for the protagonist, including he's, his death, which is not a spoiler. It happens near the beginning. And it ends with him being reconceived like during the sex act to be reborn. So it's very much a Tibetan cyclar, cyclical approach. Now, in the case of like Buddhism and Hinduism, that's considered uh, a wholesome thing. That's like a normal part of life. And it's not something to be uh, shunned or dreaded. But in this case, this person is being reborn over and over in a sense to do the same damn stuff over and over. And I wondered if Wishman is saying that rape is, and this is a very de de pessimistic approach, but maybe she's, she's saying that rape is such a primal urge for which women can't unfortunately avoid being the target of, you know, and, and that there's this inevitable cycle of sexual violence that just that women, unfortunately, tend to be the ones who pay for every time, you know, yeah. or most of the time. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I'm, I'm with you. And then the other thing I will mention, too, about the ending before we kind of open it up even more. But yeah, uh, is that the other thing? And this is probably a slightly more modern 
reading of this, but something I want to throw out there because there's been a lot of media that's really done this over the years, but for this to kind of maybe implied in 65 is kind of radical, which is the idea that, you know, if this is technically, you know, a dream of this one character's, then mm-hmm. we, we have to reconcile with the fact that is Wishman saying that there's, there's a fantasy element at play here? Uh, fantasy oh, both being that it's make-believe, but also fantasy is sexual fantasy from the character's point of view. I mean, this is a person who, um, technically speaking, is if it is a dream, then the neuroses there are that sex is both technically violent, but also you know, something that she, it, in her fantasy world, I'm not going to say that, you know, um, her actual inner, you know, person or anything like that. Right. But it's, it's something that she seeks out because technically speaking, she murders, uh, you know, the janitor, whatnot, mm-hmm. goes to New York, and then she slides right into domesticity with the right. with the other guy. And it's funny because he's the only person, I think, who does not enact sexual violence on her. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's becomes abusive because he's an alcoholic, but I don't... Or maybe he did, but it, it's not quite as... Mm-hmm. I, it's not quite as distinctly sexual as like almost all the other visionettes are, um, mm-hmm. and I and I just wonder though, you know it. We we see technically that in her fantasy, her husband leaves her because he's always working and he can't really you know uh, give her the time of day. So you know it's just it's one of those things where you wonder is like is this the weird depiction of the subconscious. Uh, mm rape fantasy like prototypical rape fantasy but from a female point of view honestly hearing doris wishman speak in interviews and how sexually candid she was even in her 80s and we play a a clip or two of that in the beginning of this episode like Mm -hmm. i wouldn't put it past her whether it was uh intentional unintentional subconscious conscious you know what i mean like i don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility that some of that is at play here Oh, I agree. I, I um I have I have a lot I would add to that, but um perhaps we should take a quick break and yeah. um I will uh you know, yeah. take care of some things and you know, <laughs> get get another beer. But I have so much I would love to talk to you about with that because that I, I really think what you're beaming in on is what I was kind of beaming in on too. All right. Well then we will talk about that as soon as we are back from this quick. I uh, made dirty calls uh, because I'm a creep. It was only a phone call, but it was a work of Seriously, it's only a film. 
Welcome back to Project Exploitation. We are currently talking about Bad Girls Go to Hell, directed by Doris Wishman. Before the break, I had actually brought up a point about the ending of this movie, the kind of radical dream ending in which you find out the entire movie with a feature-length dream by this character. And I technically uh, maybe threw it out there that... I don't think I'd put it past Doris Wishman to maybe be sexualizing sexual violence, uh, rape in general, and not as an end-all be-all of sexual satisfaction for women or just for humans in general, but that, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I think there's at least something there to dig into. And Dan, you had said that you had some thoughts on the matter as well. What, uh, what say you, Dan? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, because... Uh, uh, we had been talking about the idea of is Wishman saying that, uh, you know, rape is sort of this cycle uh, or sexual violence. Is it a cycle that women just cannot break free of because of how is that their hell, their hell, if you will. And, uh, and you had mentioned that the dream uh, sequence, which is most of the film, could very well be, you know, sort of a, a fantasy of uh, Meg slash Ellen. And I wondered that too. And it's one of those things where I, I approach it somewhat gingerly because I don't want people to think that I'm, I'm somehow um, uh, uh, signing off on the idea that uh, rape is a common woman's fantasy or, or man's fantasy for that matter. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of hints being dropped. You see Meg slash Ellen's very conflicted feelings about violent and transgressive sex in general. And uh, like from the beginning, there seems to be kind of a strange attraction repulsion to it. You know, like, you know, the, uh, there's a there's a point where she near the beginning, she receives that note from the janitor who's basically threatening to tell her husband about the assault. Right. And so, and he's like, come to my place, you know? And now she had basically two options here. She could have just simply waited for Ted to get home and then tell him right. all that happened. And Lock Ted strikes door. me. Right. I mean, like Ted strikes me as a decent enough guy, you know, I mean, I'm sure he had his own chauvinisms like all most men during that time, but I think they had a certain give and take to their marriage. I think he would believe her. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think it would be like, he oh, you're just making up stories. for dinner that night. What's that? I said he made reservations for dinner that night. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, he's, he's a decent enough bloke. <laughs> but instead, she chooses to dutifully go over to the janitor's apartment after putting on what can, I believe, most accurately be described. And, and I'm, I'm quoting Marilyn Monroe and Shelley <laughs> Winters here when I say... She was wearing fuck me pumps, you know. <laughs> so I, I, I'm I'm a fan, by the way. I have nothing against it. Oh, uh, I, I, I picked opposite. that up in, in your enunciation. <laughs> oh, you liked my uh, the uh, I'm, yeah no anyway. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, it was just, it was interesting that she does that. It feels like she's kind of walking along the razor's edge there already. Right. Um, I'm not saying she wants to be assaulted. Um, but I think she, like you said, maybe she's feeling ignored at home or something mm -hmm. like that. Or, or, or at least that's what Wishman is trying to bring across to us. You know what I mean? Well, and the idea too, is if you want that and you go after that, then you're punished for it. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. Sex equals violence or sex equals death, if you will. Um, well, and like, you know, even the stuff where like Della and Meg slash Ellen are kind of lying around their apartment in some, you know, very sexy underwear, you know, <laughs> for no particular reason, I might add. And, uh, you know, Della attempts very several times to kind of lightly proposition Ellen, but she's rebuffed. And 
It actually kind of reminded me of this uh, old short story by Anais Nen in which the narrator's roommate, who's named uh, Lena, goes around their loft like naked a good part of the time. And she seems to like, you know, just practically emit like, you know, pure sex, like, yeah. like a, I think she calls it like a smoke that's draped around her, <laughs> but she's also like unwilling until the very end to admit her attraction to the narrator. So it's almost like, you know, so here she is walking around in the underwear, but at the same time, she's like, oh, I don't know if I'm willing to take that plunge. And then I, the only reason I can even see why Meg slash Ellen leaves after consummating her attraction to, to Della is I, I think maybe to conform to the tropes of lesbian panic narratives at the time, because it, they do say they love each other. And it's clear that, I was gonna say. you know, there had been some kind of relationship beyond that one night we saw. Like, I felt like some time had passed. So, There's I definitely, and I, I would say a, a rash internalized punishment. So it's like, you, mm -hmm. so it's like, well, in this case, external forces are not going to stop us or prevent it. So now I'm going to, you know what I mean? Because quote mm -hmm. unquote, sexual exploration in general is wrong outside of a, a marriage outside of B, a heteronormative, you know, structure mm -hmm. and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, actually one thing we haven't even mentioned or we mentioned it, but haven't mentioned maybe the significance, but uh, another way that I think that this really is kind of a quote unquote fantasy is the name change. I mean, what mm, really yes. is the point of it in a movie like this where the plot is so threadbare, you know what I mean? Um <laughs> Her name change, this movie is not going over the ins and outs on how to run away from the law and get away <laughs> with with murder. So I almost yeah, do this, this, see... Yeah, uh, this isn't uh, Gone Girl where she's got yeah. this huge elaborate, you know, identity she's created <laughs> yeah. or anything like that. And that's why I actually think of the name change, especially, in, and that's the other thing, in a subgenre in which names are barely spoken. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it, it is so hard to walk away from most of these movies knowing the names of any character, let alone the main character. So now we have two repeatedly spoken names. And I actually think that the, the name change in and of itself is signaling a kind of fantastical voyage, uh, you know, of into Wonderland, so to speak. Well, I could actually see that. I think that makes a lot of sense because why else would they do it? Because it, like you said, it doesn't really serve the plot. And it's not like people are asking her a whole lot of questions about where she's from or what she used to do for a living or yeah. why she's there. You know, I and, mean, and it could be too a dissociative thing. If it is a sexual fantasy, it could be, that she is not comfortable even, you know, putting herself into it. So therefore, it's not Meg, right. Meg Kelton, it's Ellen Green. On that note, I do want to really quickly mention before I forget, mm -hmm. one of my favorite parts of this movie, uh, Wikipedia has it wrong. It says that Darlene Bennett plays uh, Tracy and Della, which is Tracy's yeah. the girl that brings her to the apartment and Della is the lesbian in the apartment, but that is actually twin sisters. <laughs> it is Darlene Ooh. and Dawn Bennett, uh, the Swenson sisters. I think they were called, uh, but the anyway, Swenson sisters. um, but I, I love the fact that, uh, I don't know why, but there's kind of a weird dreamlike logic to that. Very true. Um, of having, you know, a set of twins be this almost like harbinger of like lust because technically there's really nothing bad that happens in that apartment. That's an interesting point. Well, you know, the idea of identicals or doubles obviously figures a lot in dreams. I mean, like Jorge Luis Borges has it all over his stories, which also mm -hmm. have a lot of stories that end in a loop where it loops back to the beginning again. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, something like Dead in, Ringers, you know, I mean, that's a oh, yeah. sexually violent movie uh, in subtle and non-subtle ways. Oh, hugely. Absolutely. No, you're totally on the on the bang on there. And but it, and also I know that um, there'll be times people will talk about having fantasies involving a, um, 
another partner coming to the bed with them. But a lot of times they'll talk about, oh, I had this dream, but it's interesting because both the person who is their spouse or whatever and the third person in the dream are both the same person. They both look like the spouse. You know what I mean? So in a way, it has more to do not so much with a new person as it has to do with, um, I don't know, maybe taboo or something like that, while still being comfortable. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it kind of makes a lot of sense to me that the twins thing actually pops up. I mean, it may have just been a happy uh, series of events that, right, that, cast that got one cast. And then, oh, I've got a sister, you know. And if anything, <laughs> I actually think that's what happened because what's confusing about that is that they won't show the other one's face so on the one hand i can understand why someone would think that they casted the same person because they're really not showing you you know whatever um on the other hand it almost would be more confusing if they showed her face because in actuality they are two different people but they would look like they're one person right right well and, and it, again it kind of ties into i mean just to talk about other films that have doubling i mean uh and and loops i mean lost highway is a very famous example mm, yes where we have you know right where you have the patricia arquette character who's um uh killed and then later on she reappears in the second part of the story as a different character you know it's honestly a different hair color etc you know these kind of roughies strike me as something that david lynch would be into <laughs> mm -hmm. um i the jazz music which is always a staple True. um the sexual taboos basically being front and center you know um with that almost small town naivety uh at the center of it being corrupted i i, I genuinely think that a movie like this is has to be an influence on something like Lost Highway. And if not, wow. uh, at least influencing the cultural consciousness that would give birth to uh, the environment in which David Lynch made that movie and, and, and some of his others as well. Sure. No, that's actually kind of mind-blowing that you mentioned that because there are a lot of similarities there. And uh, yeah, like you said, that kind of naivety that's being corrupted or – uh, or, or or whatever. I mean, that's oh, that's really interesting. And actually, yeah. Um, in fact, I think there's even a stag film in Lost Highway that's being shown during one of the yeah. climactic murder scenes. And I think uh, I want to say Marilyn Manson's in it actually, <laughs> oh, but yeah. it's black and black and white. You know what I'm talking about? I, it's, it's been like ten years since I've seen it. Unfortunately, I really sure. can't rewatch it. I, it's been a long time for me too. But uh, I do remember that it was clearly like a an old timey stag film, not the sort of thing that guys would watch nowadays at a right, bachelor right, party. Right. It was very much more like a fifties, early sixties kind of deal, black and white, yep. uh, projected instead kinda of a video. Kind of caught between a, a loop and a, an actual burlesque type <laughs> thing. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Cause it probably only was about 10 or 15 minutes. A lot of those were, you know, mm -hmm. uh, another thing that uh, struck me was, um, I guess you have the Al Baines character, uh, who sort of the Bobby Cannavale type, <laughs> mm. uh, if you will. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, you can sleep on the couch. I'll take the bedroom. I'm like, oh, how chivalrous. What a shit. But oh, then yeah. again, he's. Now you're talking about the uh, the alcoholic, right, in the beginning? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, and he's kind of a tragic little poignant figure because he's trying <laughs> to not drink. And yeah. he's doing pretty well. And then he. And then she brings falls. alcohol home. I mean, that's kind of. Right. Right. What, what, the, what the movie. And, and that's an another thing is like this this whole quote-unquote dream is so punishing that it almost feels internalized in a, in a way yeah exactly yeah, yeah very punishing i mean like you know when when he loses control he, he whips her with a belt and oddly it reminded me of um a char this character lou who's the main character from a jim thompson novel called the killer inside me oh yeah and, that they, did right? they make a movie of that with they did casey yeah. affleck and jessica alba 
Yes, yeah. yes. It's, I haven't it's seen a good it, film. Yeah. It's, it's a very good film. I mean, I prefer the novel because they kind of cut out the two sort of tech parts of the texture to the novel that I really liked. I, I guess they felt like it was already implied by the mm. film visually, so they didn't need to add it in there anyway. But yeah, he's he's wrestling with what he calls the sickness, right? And, you know, which is basically a, a suppressed predilection towards, you know, psychopathy and murder. Yeah. And there's a scene in just the first couple pages of the book where he savagely beats a prostitute named Joyce Lakeland, who I believe is played by Jessica Alba, actually in the film, uh, with he hits with his belt after she physically attacks him. And uh, I've got a little quote here. He says, I tried to push past her. I had to get out of there. I knew what was going to happen if I didn't get out. And I knew I couldn't let it happen. I might kill her. It might bring the sickness back. And even if it didn't, and I, even if I didn't, and it didn't, I'd be washed up. She'd talk, she'd yell her head off, and people would start thinking and wondering about that time 15 years ago. So basically, he's already had like incidents like this. So right. he's been trying for a really long time to, to batten down the hatches. Uh, that guy kind of reminded me of that. Just the even the use of the belt. Uh, now, granted, in The Killer Inside Me, the book, uh, Joyce Lakeland actually uh, is extremely turned on by it. But in the case of Meg Allen, uh, Meg Slash Ellen, I should say. I don't know if she's all that turned on. Well, at any rate, she leaves. Her survival instinct is strong enough that she knows she has to leave, basically. <laughs> you know, but it's it's definitely again, it's one of those things where it's. I don't know, and I might be projecting because I've read The Kill Inside Me a couple of times. But I, I'm wondering. I was kind of projecting, like, well, is this another form of fantasy for her? Is this sort of like you know, like this is the episodes represent a sort of a parade of of different fantasies that she she dare not express in life, you know, or something like that. Right. Well, and that's the other thing is I think any time society i think at large is dictated by this kind of like i guess i'll say religious morality like mm -hmm. you know like if you take an entire population like like catholics and i can say that because i was one mm -hmm. <laughs> before i quit but <laughs> I, I vouch and i vouch for you i know you were i vouch, oh, thank you. I vouch for that thank You're welcome. you um but like you know it's like Usually that's a lot of times, psychologically speaking, how fantasies are born. It's if you are within the community that says this is what sin is and this mm -hmm. is what's wrong, um, even if those things are undoubtedly wrong, whether it's rape and, you know, what any other kind of sexual violence, it almost becomes conflated because then if you say that's wrong and masturbation is wrong, that at a certain <laughs> point you have to admit that your scale is you know, wonky, or <laughs> then what's going to happen is in, in psyches, then like that kind of thing starts to start to mesh together. And it's like, well, if I do this, you know, if I just want to have a good sexual feeling and that's just as wrong as that. And, you know, and all these wires get twisted. And I, I, I think movies like this get made during that era because we at large, you know, being in kind of a Christian nation, even though we're not really supposed to be, um, mm -hmm. that this is the kind of messaging that gets kind of hardwired in, in men and women's brain, that this is all part of the same uh, sin slash pleasure, depending on what side of the bed you're waking up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I think there's a certain idea about um, transgressions, that uh, become more more a means of controlling you know the population. I think Freud often talked about in uh, uh, Civilization as Discontents. He basically said that you know we have all these primal desires and 
we need to make sure that we keep a lid on them because that's the only way that we won't have anarchy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so in a way I can understand why they're saying that they're like, okay, you know, let's, we have, we have taboos regarding incest or rape, you know, or thing or, or violence like that, because those actually have, uh, those actually benefit society when they're not done. You know what I mean? Right. But other stuff, like you said, the, the scale gets a little wonky there. It's yeah. like, really? Is this as bad as all that? Yep. And yeah, you do wonder. I mean, I look at dime store novels, even like, you know, Killer Inside Me. I think that was from the 50s. These were these were very much, they bubbled out of the subconscious of, yeah. of, a, of a very buttoned down society. Oh, you know? I mean, as a librarian, I can tell you, you know, uh, erotic novels like, like entered the mainstream in the 60s, pretty much around mm. the time this movie was made, uh, because the bans were being lifted on uh, what was considered socially and morally acceptable to put in even in print. <laughs> and that's just crazy. Interesting. Yeah. Um, one thing I need to mention, and then I think we can probably uh, get into final ratings. Unless, do you have any like for sure things before we get there? That or... No, no. I think yeah. I, I think I kind of hit on the stuff that I really wanted to talk to you about that I wanted to kind of get your, your take on. Oh, yeah. And I think we pretty much did. I, but I do want to say... Um, two things one uh i love the line in the beginning of the movie when uh she's in bed with the husband before they both get up or whatever and um the husband tells her be a good girl yes uh, <laughs> yes which you know in <laughs> conjunction with that title and with the odyssey that she'll go on is just kind of heartbreaking if you rewatch it of like you know uh, we know it's a dream, but technically speaking, we also know that when she wakes up, if that is in fact her actually waking up into consciousness, uh, that it is something he says to her in in waking life. Right. Uh, that is, uh, it's it's very damning, and I, I very much enjoy that little line. Agreed. Um, yes. And then the other thing I got to say is, uh, you know, you mentioned the shots in Central Park of like the ducks, and uh, I think there was another, oh, the pigeons and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know what? That's actually interesting because I do think there's almost a weird, not subplot, but character detail that she's very into uh, animal wildlife and animals in general. Because before she goes to take a shower, she goes into the bathroom and undresses, and then she kisses a painting of cats. <laughs> Oh right! That is, that is hanging in her bathroom. I always, I was so glad I mentioned this because every time I watch it, I giggle because I don't know what the significance of that it is at all, or if that was something that uh, she, the actress uh, Gigi Darlene, uh, added, or if Doris put that in the script. I don't know, but it tickles me each time that this is like for for a movie like this, you know, sexploitation. It's a roughie. There is a moment in which a naked girl just leans over and smooches a painting of cats and you know what <laughs> i think it's the most realistic moment in the entire movie <laughs> yeah you know i'm glad you mentioned that because i had forgotten about it but it is it feels such it's so eccentric it feels really real <laughs> you know what i mean like oh yeah that's something that probably somebody does in their life you know oh yeah so, so I anyway yeah. i i would have been remiss if i didn't mention that so maybe there was Indeed. a little telltale sign of uh kind of a kindred spirit with animals out in the wild uh but as we know animals often become prey so Indeed. Mm -hmm. So let's bring it in to final ratings. I don't know why I'm talking All like a robot. Right. Final uh, ratings. Oh, I thought it was Cosell. Final ratings. <laughs> We're into the final. Now a study in mawkishness. No, go on. No, I'm that's sorry. the problem. Though, is when I try to do like a radio voice, which I don't know if I am trying to do or if I'm not trying to do, I, I almost always think that like 
enunciating not syllables but words is like mm-hmm. the only way to distinguish between a normal conversational uh voice and like your actual like producer voice so anyway <laughs> no i know what you mean like i you know who i always think of as the ultimate sports voice and this is the point of course is that hank azaria uh television show what's the name of it uh where he oh, plays the sportscaster yes yes he he really nails that especially the baseball announcer the guy doing the play-by-play i mean he really yeah. nails that voice because uh, because it's not the booming big like rock dj voice it's the other one the sort of uh yeah the, 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 i don't know it's hard no, to, yeah. I, I can't do it yeah so. no you're you're right there so uh dan why don't you go with your final thoughts and final rating and then i will take it on home after you all right sounds good um i i i think probably uh, it, again like i said I, I feel a bit like uh someone in an alien landscape so it's hard to base it on this this film against the others of the same subgenre but i think i would give it three and a half because i have a feeling that it's um it's doing some pretty uh intriguing things and that the more films in the style i watch the more i'll appreciate this one later you know it's it's almost like you know what i mean it's like or you know i don't know owning some incredibly fast automobile uh that's your first car at 16 and then later on you go Oh man, they're not all going to be like this. I'm going to have some minivans in here too. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think that's kind of uh, what I'm guessing will happen. So I'm going to give this three and a half, and um, curious to see more. All right, right on. Uh, I am going to go just a little step higher. I'm going to give it four out of five. I, I very much love this movie. It's a really really good example of this genre as to you know what some of these directors uh, and i really consider them to be maverick directors in a lot of ways because besides the fact that they were working outside the hollywood system in general um a lot of them were also trying to carve out their own kind of carbon footprint in a genre that was inherently formulaic and um you know uh had these kind of codified set of rules that you had to follow either just due to budgetary reasons or just to be marketable because you know someone makes it then you got to make yours like theirs and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth but i think there are people out there like doris wishman joe sarno uh you know joseph p mara all these people uh who were pretty good at what they did and they were kind of able to smuggle in some slightly heftier themes and some decent camera work every once in a while. And I think bad girls go to hell is absolutely one of those examples. So I give it four out of five stars for this, uh, for this little roughie, uh, which I have in my nose that a roughie is, uh, 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 this is very crude, but a roughie is uh, where pinups are getting pinned down. Ah, um, <laughs> that would have been a great tagline. I know, right? I can totally see an exclamation point after that with like that, you know, zoom, script yeah. across the top, you know? I, you know, I feel like I, I really should take better notes when I watch these movies because instead of like taking notes about the movies, I just try to think of stupid puns or stupid things <laughs> I can say. Like, I also have written down that, you know, nudie cuties kind of turned into roughies or as I would call them, new Broodies. Oh, nice. Oh, God. This will be the last episode of Project Exploitation well, ever. So. Well, to, to, to be fair, you do think a lot about puns and stuff Dan, during the rest of the time, too. Dan, don't tell people that. 
<laughs> oh, you think that's like you think that's like a well-guarded secret? Oh, yeah. You know, like anyone who's ever listened to like a single episode of Film Tank will know your love of puns is unrivaled. I've got to so. control. I can stop anytime I want. Right, right. I know. I know. I'm okay. not saying you can't. Okay. You know. Well, I'm just saying if you think you have a problem, you probably do. Okay. That's all I'm saying. Well, mm-hmm. that's, God uh, grant me the serenity to pun what I can't. And shun what I can't. Anyway. hey uh, So, that was oh. our review of Bad Girls Go to Hell, directed by mm. the Queen, Doris Wishman. And now, we're moving on to a little segment I like to call, because it is the title of the segment, The A-List. Uh, and in The A-List, what we do is we take a movie that we think would pair very well with the movie we just talked about, and... If you don't remember what that was, um, you may need to go see a doctor, but it was Bad Girls Go to Hell, directed by Doris Wishman. And we, we want to pair a movie with it that, you know, due to the name, due to the nature of these being B movies, we try to think of the quote unquote A movie that might be an easier entry point to kind of pair and uh, contrast uh, these movies with. So something slightly more either accessible or acclaimed or just something that's probably slightly more widely seen. Uh, but Dan has broken the rules before, so we'll we'll be in suspense as to whether he will again. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Dan, you want to go first or you want me to go first? You choose. Uh, I'll go first. All but right, first, go. let's First, let's play the theme. Oh, of course. I will say your theme for it was pretty great. Well, thank you. I, I did try to make it as short as possible. Thank and you. I just, I just wanted a little bumper. So anyway, okay. So my uh, choice, originally I was thinking Thelma and Louise, actually. Because, oh, yeah. Right? It's a very good film. And honestly, I, I was having a great deal of trouble thinking of good films in which uh, a woman kills in self-defense and then has to go on the lam. Now, we have a lot of revenge women's films, you know, like Ms. 45, right. I Spit on Your Grave, all, all sorts. Yes. Um, right, which are all, I mean, certainly worth mentioning. But um, I, I couldn't think of many where they literally kind of go on the run. And Thumb Louise was one of the only ones where I could think of, even though in that case, uh, self-defense is a little iffy, which is part of the point of the movie but yeah uh it's a great movie really scott 1991 but honestly in the end um the thing i was most excited about with bad girls go to hell was the sort of uh hellish or purgatorial loop that the film gives you and uh you know that sort of ouroboros of the snake eating its tail thing and that's what i really was intrigued about so that's why i'm going to recommend a movie that came out in 2016 it's called the ghoul and it's a british film directed by gareth tunley it is very much available uh on arrow i believe distributes it um and it's uh, it's Gareth Tunley's first film, so I'm, I don't know if he's done anything since then, but I was quite impressed with it. I think it's probably, well, uh, leaving aside all the themes that relate it to Bad Girls Go to Hell, it's also maybe one of the best depictions I've seen of 
that feeling of sinking into depression, which is odd, um, considering it's also sort of a supernatural right. film. It, it's it's sort of a supernatural homage to the obsessed detective films. I mean, like complete with like, you know, the wall with the scraps of paper and the maps and the arrows and the in the photos <laughs> and the scrawled notes and you know and the, all that stuff. And it's very much like that. But I don't want to say much about it. I guess I'll just read the um, I'll read the IMDb description, which is pretty good, actually. He, it says, a homicide detective goes undercover as a patient to investigate a psychotherapist he believes is linked to a strange double murder. As his therapy sessions continue, the line between fantasy and reality begins to blur. Um, I, I don't want to say much more than that because I went in cold, and I think that's the way most people ought to go in. Um, but I will say it's very much something uh, that involves a sort of a diabolical loop you know where or or uh, uh which and and it's very well done to the point where it it it's almost seamless in a way i mean i guess you sort of know at the end what's happening but it still seems pretty seamless um to the point where i think you could probably start the movie or you could finish the movie and put it on repeat and start it again and it would feel like you were just starting up again and it would just kind of continue on a loop so it's a little bit like lost highway um like lost highway begins and ends with shots of of highway roads and mm. in, th in this case they're like the sodium streetlights on the uh, m1 in london uh so it's it's so that's kind of an interesting you know just uh, aesthetic theme in itself, just a recurring imagery there. Um, I mean, the only stuff I could really compare it to other than Bad Girls Go to Hell would be um, maybe The Tenant, which is a great movie, uh, which also has a weird loop, or like I said before, some of the stories of Jorge Luis Borges, or maybe it has a little bit of angel heart in it, a little, but I mean, it's it's very much an intriguing film of its own style. And it does a very good job of introducing you to the main characters and slowly kind of um, belying your expectations of what those characters are or what, or what their motivations are. So it's quite good. And uh, like I said, it has that weird looping quality uh, that feels just so distressing to me, <laughs> which I really like. <laughs> yeah. I, it's I, very, uh, <laughs> Whatever a movie kind of does that, it's always like very uncomfortable once you have that realization and you're like, ah, shit. Well, yeah. Like, you, <laughs> well, it feels like you're very stuck. existential. Yes, very existential. Yeah. And you feel like you're kind of stuck there. You're like, oh, God. No matter how many times I watch this movie, I'm going to end up here again. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, so that's my movie, The Ghoul from 2016. Right on. I definitely now need to check that out. I had not mm -hmm. heard of it before, but I think that is a perfect choice. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> or should I say, almost a perfect choice until you hear mm -hmm. my choice. Because mm -hmm. uh, I rock. No. Right. Uh, my <laughs> pick for the A list to pair with Bad Girls Go to Hell, once I, you know, just kind of thumbed through movies I've seen or whatever on Letterboxd. It took me about 60 seconds because once I saw the cover, I was like, oh, yeah, this is like the only thing I can think of now. Um, but for me, it is very, very much uh, Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls. Um, Showgirls, you know, the, the 1995 erotic movie from Paul Verhoeven oh. back uh, then and you know that yes that showgirls right yes yes that showgirls what showgirls did you think sorry I, 
I, I, you know, I, um, there's a, just a long tradition of showgirls being in old black and white and film noir. So I didn't uh, realize until you said it that you were talking about showgirls as in the title was showgirls. So sorry, no, my, my bad. No, Paul Verhoeven showgirls from 1995. Woo. And um, mm-hmm. you know what? This would be a perfect double billing in my eyes for a lot of reasons. One of them, it's the evolution of the sex film, you know, sexploitation mm-hmm. in the 60s to 30 years later, you know, NC-17 was awarded to showgirls as a badge of honor and whatnot um and so just kind of how far the censorship laws have obviously slacked in 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 a good way and um and also it's literally about a woman who wants to uh enter into a new town and give up on her old life and we find out at the very toward the very end that it's because she's running away from a life of crime uh Ah. and being continually used and abused by all the men in this industry i mean it's it's honestly i know it's a remake of all about eve just in the you know vegas uh, showgirl culture but technically speaking this was as i mentioned earlier about uh sexploitation and especially roughies this was the template for the plot back then and for it to do all that and then for the final scene to have her literally leave las vegas because now she has to leave vegas get picked up by seemingly a, a trucker or whatever who looks eerily like the first trucker that she hitchhiked with to get into Vegas because mm. now she's the joke is she's going to California to become an actress, you know, as if the same shit won't happen, you know, in a different town and whatnot. So um, it has that kind of loop <laughs> right. quality to it. It is technically a kind of sexploitation movie. Well, it is a sexploitation movie, not even just technically. Um, and uh, it's got a lot of things I think to say about the, uh, you know, mistreatment of uh, misogyny in the culture. Now, a lot of people hate that movie and all those people would be wrong. <laughs> and that's okay. We all get it wrong sometimes. <laughs> but um, I think these two movies go together, uh, like one being the kind of older you know, sister showing the ropes to uh, <laughs> showgirls. And we know Paul Verhoeven, uh, you know, due to his age, you know, grew up watching these kind of American movies oh, for yeah. sure. And even, uh, you know, uh, Turkish and whatnot, because even his early t- uh, stuff uh, was pretty much, I mean, it was made in the 70s, the, the early stuff. And they, they were pretty, they were much closer to something like Bad Girls Go to Hell than the director of Total Recall or Starship Troopers uh, would, right. you know, have you think. So. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, Verhoeven's earlier stuff is, I mean, not only is it sexually explicit, but it's very episodic in that same way. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, very, and, and very cheap in a way, not cheap as in like, oh, you know, there's no real actors, but like, you know, just using the budget to its full effect instead of trying to actually, um, you know, tell an epic or anything like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, that is my pick for the A-list. Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls. uh, Just a wonderful movie. Nice, (laughs) Um, nice choice. And uh, I feel, I feel it would be, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there is a small uh, monogram, excuse me, monograph, I should say, a book about it by Adam Naiman, yes, which explains why it's actually a great film. And the the book is so entertaining and and um, intelligently written that it has made me want to go back and, and look at Showgirls again, which I have not seen since like ninety eight. I want to say uh, you are missing out. I think I, I watched it like 
five times in the last like five years like i i never i've never get enough of it um and yeah you were kind enough to bestow that book a copy of oh. that book uh to me so yes, and i sadly yes. have not read it yet but uh one of these... i have not read it all yet either but i bought myself a copy too but of i didn't course. read it all yet so it's yes. all good. <laughs> Oh, well, I think that is going to about do it. Uh, Dan, did you have anything you wanted to talk about before we wrap this up? Any, like, super personal issues you need to bring mm-hmm. up or confess for before we wrap this up? Sure. I'm I'm still reeling from a, uh unfortunate uh, sexual episode from last night. Okay. Uh, no, yeah. I'm kidding. That's from, no. Li- that's from Liar Liar, actually. I just love that line. So now you are a liar. Well, am I though, or am I just quoting? Because here I thought I was really stumbling onto something just absolutely torrid and really Mm. made for good podcasting. But instead, uh, you decided to, quote unquote, take the funny way out and just really make Mm. a mockery of my process. Well, yes. I mean, I, I think that's pretty accurate. Ah, and that's Mm -hmm. why we do this. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. exactly. (laughs) Well, from Dan Jeremy Brooks, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Mm -hmm. And from myself, Nick Cheney, you can listen to our podcast on uh, all major podcast platforms, whether it is Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, all those fun stuff. Uh, We're all up there. We do have a Twitter account at projects pod. So that's uh, our handle is at the at sign uh, P R O. J-E-X-P-O-D, Projects Pod. And uh, I tweet from there every once in a while about what I've been watching. Or the other day I threw up those sweet, sick pillows that I bought uh, from the... from the horror vendor at the uh, Midway Drive-In thing. I bought one pillow that had a bunch of covers of Italian giallo films and then another cover of slightly more American classics. And uh, do not do not regret that in the slightest. No, they're awesome. Um, I love those pillows, yeah. by the way. I was very envious when you got them. I was like, yeah, mm. I noticed that, which is why I put them in the trunk of your car so you wouldn't touch them while I was sleeping. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> At least you think I didn't. Oh, shit. I forgot it was your car. So, yeah, you, you technically had access. <laughs> I, I do have access. To it. No, that's true. Uh, anyway, sorry. Go on. No, no. So that is what we're doing over there on Twitter. So if you have any, uh, I don't know, if you have any thoughts on any of these movies, uh, you can always tweet us, but you can always also email us. We are technically at Project Exploitation, the title of this very podcast, uh, at gmail.com. And our website itself is, of course, now... Because now we have a new website since the last time we were uh, we were recording one of these. We are now mm-hmm. officially at projectexploitation.com. There is no more .wordpress because you know what? Why slum it? Exactly. You know <laughs> why what? Slum? Why fuck about with half measures? That's, That's what I always ask. You always say it, and I'm always like, Dan, shut up. I'm trying to do a podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I do actually say that phrase a lot. So oh, I'm sorry. So please continue, my friend. <clears throat> uh, we have fun here. So we do. As I've said, we are Twitter, our website, uh, email us, do whatever you want, hit us up, and uh, you know we would love to hear from you. And maybe you could even influence what we do. You know, if we get enough people, or really, if we even get one person suggesting a movie, I don't think we are opposed to just doing whatever the hell comes along our way. Mm-hmm. Uh, next recording, we are going to be doing the Stuart Gordon movie Space Truckers. I believe that Space is from Space Truckers. 19- <laughs> 1996. Um, 
I have never seen it. This is the first one we'll be doing where Dan has seen it and I have not. Ooh. And in the spirit of why we're doing it, besides the fact that Dan is a big fan, uh, is that we will be kind of rounding out all the four major eras uh, that this podcast will hopefully cover, which is ending with the 90s. We've done, uh, what was it? Death Race is from the 70s. Evils of a Night from the 80s. Now this Bad Girls Go to Hell is from the 60s. And technically the 90s was kind of a tail end where Mm -hmm. a lot of certain random things, whether it was these weird like space truckers, sci-fi spectacles, you know, were starting to take off because of shoddy CGI or even just a slasher craze in general. The 90s was kind of the last dying breath of exploitation pictures Mm -hmm. in general. So Dan, are you do you have any thoughts about space truckers you want to say for anyone who hasn't seen it just to prepare themselves? Well, I'm, I'm a really big fan. I mean, I, I think I said this before with the, during the evils of the night episodes that I'm a big fan of Stuart Gordon. I haven't seen all his films, but the ones I've seen, I very much like, and uh, I think he's got a, a very great satirical sense of humor while at the same time investing pretty, pretty all in when it comes to the actual genre stuff too. He isn't just, oh, haha, look, I'm, I'm, you know, referencing genres. It's <laughs> no, no, he, he is a lover of that stuff as well as a very wicked satirist. So I'm, I think you guys will enjoy it. I love space truckers and I've seen it actually several times, believe it or not. And in fact, uh, there's a quote from it, uh, in our, uh, opening theme song. So. Yes, I believe that's said by Dennis Hopper based on the voice. <laughs> yes, it's, yes, it's kind of hard one. not to uh, to pick that one out of a lineup, uh, <laughs> voice wise. So very true. Yeah, so uh, watch the movie and see if uh, if you haven't already, see if you can pick out which quote is in our uh, theme song. Ooh. Otherwise, we'll tell you next time on Project Exploitation. Thanks for listening and keep on projecting. needs an end, Max. I... I don't have an end.